Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Morning, everyone. Welcome. My name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at Sovereign Hope, and uh, I just want to invite you, if you are new um, here or if you have been here for a while and haven't gotten plugged in, uh, next week after the service, we're having something called Explore Sovereign Hope, and it's going to be back in the fellowship area right after the sermon or right after service, and you'll have an opportunity to meet some of the church staff, meet our elders, hear about places where you can get involved in what we're trying to do with the gospel here in Missoula. And so even if you have someone who's been interested in coming to church, uh, this is a great Sunday to invite them because not only will they gather and worship to see what Paul talks about in Ephesians, the manifold wisdom of God, um, but they'll also see what it looks like to be part of God's church here at Sovereign Hope. And so we encourage you, um, if you have not yet gotten plugged in, if you're visiting and want more info, to check us out next week for Explore Sovereign Hope, and there'll be some lunch there as well. Um, So let's pray before we dive into God's Word once more. Lord Jesus, we are grateful um, for this wonderful weekly routine, um, which can become so mundane and so ordinary, but behind it is this beautiful wonder, um, wonder of getting as close to heaven as we can with uh, life in our mortal flesh here. Um, And so we pray that as we sit under your word, as we look at Paul's concluding exhortations to a church just like ours, that you would work mightily in our hearts, that you would equip us to endure and to stand firm. And Lord, we praise you for your word. We praise in your name. Amen. So as Paul mentioned, uh, today we get to conclude our series in the book of Ephesians. Next week, I encourage you to come back. Uh, we're starting Deuteronomy, which will take us through the new year. And I love, one of my favorite things to do is to finish a book of the Bible in terms of preaching because if you ask me what my favorite book is, it's just the book I've preached last because the more time you spend in God's word, the more time you spend looking at it, the more beautiful it becomes. And so I hope you've had that experience as well as we've spent uh, 14 weeks now in the book of Ephesians. And because of that, I would encourage you this week, it would take you 20 to 30 minutes to at some point sit down and read the book of Ephesians um, from beginning to end as a unit and see if you can follow more clearly what Paul is doing and what he's trying to do in the book. Because my hope is, is if you are somebody who thinks the Christian life or the Christian gospel to be something uninspiring or lackluster or simply an additional component of your life, that throughout this book, Paul captures you with the life-transformative truth of the gospel of Jesus. That's what Paul's been doing through this book. What he wants to do is he wants to present Jesus and his work on the cross as so beautiful that every aspect of your life is changed now that you are a member of God's church. That's what it means to have, as our series is titled, A Beautiful Occupation. To be occupied with Jesus means that our occupation in life is different. And that compelling motivation, that beautiful occupation is something that Paul is leaning on today in his concluding words to the church in Ephesus. And we split that last chunk, verses 10 through 24, into two parts. Last week, we looked at the need to stand firm, where Paul's only goal in verses 10 through 13 was to convince us that we are in a war. The greatest need you have is not to succeed by worldly standards. The greatest need you have in this world, is to endure in the fight of faith for your soul. That's the greatest need. When all is said and done, Paul's prayer is that you would have stood firm. Now, it's not a very fair fight. 
Because the power of the gospel is compared to nothing to the power of Satan and unbelief. But the point that Paul is making is despite that immeasurable power, the point of application is to you, if you are a believer, that to be a believer, you are one who endures to the end, who stands firm against Satan's attacks. The gospel is not just some pill we take once in our life that makes everything okay. The gospel is the very power of God through Jesus to save us and restore us to him. And because of that, it is something which we draw from every day, looking at the wonder and the beauty of what Jesus has done for us. I heard a preacher use an illustration once of a man who saw a moth. Um, That's how you know it's an actual real story, because who actually is captivated by a moth and not a butterfly? But so anyway, this guy's looking at a moth. He's wriggling out of his cocoon, and he's watching it struggle as it's trying to wriggle through an opening that is so small compared to the size of the creature trying to get out of the cocoon. And so what he does is he goes and gets a clipper, and he cuts the cocoon off the moth, and the moth is finally free and looks really appreciative, and he spreads out its shriveled wings, but the salvation the moth experienced was short-lived. Because for the next couple weeks, this man noticed that the moth just drug its hulking body through the house on its legs and didn't fly like it should. And so he did some research and he found out that God had so designed that very small opening in that cocoon to be small and to be tight. So that the struggle of the moth, as it does the work to wriggle through it, actually forces the fluids of the moth into the wings so that they might become rigid and strong enough to fly with. In an attempt to remove struggle from the moth, he actually proved to harm it. And I think in Western Christianity, we are people who look for clippers on every corner. Our culture desires success and immediacy, and we sacrifice anything to get it. Which means if there are things in our life which cause us to endure, which cause us to slow down, and which cause us to think about things in the future, we try to avoid it, to medicate it, and to shortcut it at all costs. But in this text that we're looking at today, Paul is writing to Christians, preparing them for the struggle which will endure them. The struggle that will give them the strength they need to cross the finish line. In the text which Paul just read for us, I hope you saw two things that were abundantly clear. First is that the life of a Christian is a life of war. But then second, that God in his grace has given his believers everything they need to make it through this battle. And it's those things which God has given to us that we're going to look at today. But before we get in, um, I want to preface everything we're going to look at in this armor for us today so we can understand it rightly. Paul is writing to Christians. He's writing to those believers who are part of the church in Ephesus or in cities surrounding that area of a region that's now in modern-day Turkey. He's writing to those who believe in the gospel, who believe that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God, who have put their faith in Christ Jesus, meaning this, that when we look at this list of armor that Paul is talking about, this armor and its pieces are free gifts given by grace to those who are saved. It's not this magical national treasure treasure hunt that we go on, and by the end, if we've collected all of these right pieces, then we'll be saved. This is something that God gives to those who are saved. You can't fight your way into salvation, but you can fight inside of your salvation. And that's what Paul is doing 
in this text. The truths of this text are freely given to you from God because he loves his people. He loves his church. It is God's motivation of love to give this to you freely. You have access to this right now. And so to those who feel confident in here, notice that there is no strength you have which does not come from the good hand of God. And to those who feel weak in here, know that there is nothing in your heart or in this world that is stronger than the free gift of grace that God has given you in Jesus Christ. And so it's only when we understand this context that we can turn to what Paul is saying because he's saying to you, it's here. It is at hand. It is ready for you to take advantage of if you stand in Jesus Christ. And there are two categories that we're going to look at today for the Christian disciple, for someone who follows Jesus, that Paul wants you to see. And he wants you to see two things. He wants you to see the attitude of a Christian soldier and the armaments of a Christian soldier. The attitudes and the armaments. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read verses 14 through 24 for us one more time. And I want you to hear if you can see these things um, in this text before we circle back in. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. When I was in high school, uh, we had a teacher who at one point had worked as, as a security guard in an inner city mall in Chicago. And because of that, he was conditioned to always expect to be attacked by someone at any point of the day. And so this carried over moving from Chicago to Montana into teaching high school, which meant that me and other dummies like me uh, found great joy in trying to scare him. Because when you tried to scare him, there are two things that happened simultaneously that were completely enjoyable. The first thing is he would widen his stance, he would drop his shoulder, and he would cock his fist ready to swing. And then secondly, you'd see this contortion of him realizing he's about to just punch this dumb 16-year-old kid in the face, and he'd like try to barrel roll out of it so that he doesn't go to jail. And he was ready at all times. And in verses 14 through 15... Paul wants us as Christians to carry that same level of preparedness into our walk with God. To always be ready around any corner at the drop of the hat to stand and fight, to stand firm. In other words, these are expectations that Paul wants the Christian soldier to have that frame their idea of what it means to follow Jesus. Paul, as he's progressing through this list of armor, starts and describes it in the same way a Roman soldier would put it on. 
These are the basic viewpoints that you should have if you want to endure this fight. And the first attitude, he says, he says that a believer should have an attitude shaped by truth. He calls us to put on the belt of truth. And included in this idea of truth is certainly God's word, but that can't be the only meaning because Paul is going to come back to that a little later on as its own piece of armor. Now, out of all the pieces of armor, this is the one that is least clamored for in Sunday school classrooms. Even you can make shoes look a little bit cooler than a belt. But in the Roman infantry and in Paul's instructions to the Christians here, this small piece would have been of first importance to anyone hoping to survive on the battlefield. In that day, most soldiers wore tunics, which is yes to say they wore dresses. And so if they were ever to go fight, they were to, if you have your King James there, gird their loins. So they take up their dress and they tie it in this wonderfully aggressive diaper, and then they cinch it with a belt so that it doesn't fall down. And if soldiers were to fail to gird themselves properly, they would be caught very literally in the battlefield with their pants down. And they would be unencumbered, they'd be tripped up, they'd be slow, and they would probably die. This is how important the belt was. It freed up their feet so they had the ability to move with intentionality. They were ready for action. I've played in lots of outdoor tournaments throughout the years, from flag football to basketball to volleyball. And if you've ever played in one of those, you know how distracting it can be when there are whistles and courts all around you. Because you're playing and you hear a whistle and you're not sure if that whistle is from your court or the court next to you and it causes just that moment hesitation. You become tripped up for just a second and sometimes that's all the enemy needs to steal the ball, to block your shot, to pull your flag, to whatever it is. It's cumbersome to endure when there are competing realities in your life. And Paul's point is, is this is how cumbersome it could be for you to fight this fight of faith if you don't learn to hear the supremacy of God's whistle. If your ears are not trained for God's truth. To use modern language, this is what we often call the need of having a gospel worldview. Of knowing of, that all things are to be understood through God's things. That whatever we encounter, we're thinking through terms of what does God think about this? And this starts chiefly where Christians, by default, of being a Christ follower, you know that there is a God, and that God is not you. And so when we encounter truth in any way, we encounter truth knowing that there is a God who has created. And that creator has authority. And that authority is not me. And what that also means then is that if you wish to live a true life, a true and authentic life is a life that reflects God's truth, that listens to the reality that he portrays, not reality of competing worldviews. This is what Paul has already said uh, in Ephesians 5, verses 8 through 10. Listen, where he talks about the supremacy of hearing this truth. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Paul wants you to think about these things that God has given to know this truth and let it shape everything else so you hear his whistle so clearly. 
Philippians 2, verses 4, 8 through 9. Look at how Paul um, commissions this church to live at the end of his letter. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. You see, for the disciple to gird his loins, to take grip of this belt of truth which frees us up to move, means that the guiding principle in your life is not, as culture would tell you, to be true to yourself, but instead is to be true to God. And if God is the creator of all things, then there is nothing more true to yourself than being true to the one who made you. And so you ought to, as you look at everything you're going to encounter in life, the chief question, the lens through which you see everything is, what does God think about this? What has God designed this for? And what does it mean for me? That's what it means to have your feet free to move because truth has removed things from its obstacles, or has removed its obstacles. Next, Paul calls us to put on the breastplate of righteousness in Ephesians 6, verse 14. Now, one of Paul's favorite things to talk about is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Our greatest problem is that you are not righteous. You are unrighteous, which means you're sinful. It means that God has a perfect standard of perfection, and if you want to get into his heaven, you must be perfect. But unrighteous people can't get into God's perfect heaven because they're imperfect. But Jesus was fully righteous. Jesus lived the perfect life that we were called to live. And when we have faith in Jesus, all of Jesus' perfect righteousness is given to those who are unrighteous. Our righteousness doesn't cut it, but Jesus' righteousness does. And this is really the center of Paul's theology. And you see this in Romans chapter 3. Verses uh, one through, or 21 through 24, where Paul says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So we are saved not because we can perform well enough. We're saved because Jesus performed well enough. And even that truth isn't good for you unless you have faith in that Jesus. We're saved because of what Jesus did and his righteousness, not our own. And that's really this, this doctrine of justification being made declared just by faith in Jesus. But when Paul is talking about righteousness here, most commentators don't think that this is what Paul is talking about in this section of putting on the armor of God for one simple reason. Because Paul is already writing to Christians. And the righteousness that justifies us in faith is not an additional doctrine that makes us move more Christianly. Justification of Jesus' righteousness by faith is the very foundation of salvation. If you don't understand that Jesus has given you his righteousness, then according to Paul, you don't understand what saves you. It is essential and foundational that we be covered by Jesus' righteousness. 
And so in this text, he's not necessarily understanding, he's not calling us to just understand the theology of Jesus' righteousness being given to us. Instead, he's calling us to go one step further and to apply Jesus' righteousness to the life of a believer. Those who have been covered by Jesus' righteous work now set their lives to pursue good and righteous work. And this is the second attitude that Paul wants you to have, is that you would have an attitude shaped by a zeal for godly living. Paul wants you to realize that living out of righteousness is one of the greatest defenses against Satan. That's kind of an interesting thing here, because here he's talking about armor, he's talking about defensive things, but he's calling us to be active. One of the best ways to curb the allure of sin, Paul is saying, is to have our hearts covered by a healthy attraction to godly or righteous living. In other words, when it comes to resisting Satan and sin, Paul doesn't just say, avoid porn. He also says, go share the gospel with your neighbor. Go read the Bible with a friend. Don't just put away hate, but go serve at family promise. Don't just turn from competing worldviews, but instead... Pick up the Bible, read the Bible, pray. One of the best ways we can protect against sin is to be active to pursue righteousness in every area of our life. To endure as a Christian means that you need to put aside the lie of passivity. The lie that once you become a Christian, so long as you're just not doing these token sins, you will find the strength to endure. But Paul is saying if you want to endure, you have to take action. You have to pursue a righteous life. It's hard to be busy with the lies of sin when we're preoccupied with the business of God. It takes up our time. It's a form of protection. Look at how the writer of Proverbs talks about sloth and passivity. In Proverbs chapter 6, it says this in uh, verses 9 through 11. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Passivity has no place in the Christian life. And even more, Paul has given us something to occupy our time. All of life, according to Paul, is occupied by a greater desire to participate in something. And we saw this, didn't we? In Ephesians chapter 2, where after Paul outlines the beauty of our salvation... He says this, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Do you hear how wonderful this righteous living is? To live a life which pleases God because we've been covered by the righteousness of Jesus. Look also in the book of Titus, where Paul is writing to his young protege, And he says this in Titus 2, verses 13 through 14. He kind of picks up mid-thought. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. May we be a church who resists sin, not just because we close our eyes and clench our fists really hard, 
but because we are occupied in pursuing the righteous works that God has purchased his church to do. He wants us to have an attitude of submission to God's truth, an attitude zealous and expecting that Jesus' righteousness shapes the way we live. And lastly, we see the final attitude is that he wants us to have an attitude shaped by gospel readiness. Look back at verse 15. And his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You see, unlike modern warfare today, during the time of Rome, most battles were fought on foot, which means the soldier who was the fleetest on foot had the greatest advantage in battle. And if you've ever gone to a graduation ceremony at any point in your life, probably even before it was written, it was still probably read, the book by Dr. Seuss of the places you'll go. It's just, if you graduate, you get the book. And in that book, it says this, congratulations, today is your day, you're off to great places, you're off and away. You'll have brains in your head, you have feet in your shoes, you can steer yourself any direction you choose. You're on your own, and you know what you know, and you are the guy who'll decide where to go. You look up and down streets, look them over with care. About some you'll say, I don't choose to go there. With your head full of brain and your shoes full of feet, you're too smart to go down any not-so-good street. And so this book captures something really well. That when you are saved by Jesus Christ, you'll be amazed at the places that gospel carries you. Someday you'll be standing there and be like, where am I and what am I doing apart from what the gospel has done in my life? It'll be amazing. And sometimes it will be terrifying. And this is where this idea of, oh, the places you'll go, falls so far short of what Paul is communicating to us today. There are two things in Dr. Seuss's book that I think invade our thoughts and shape our view of Christianity. And the first is this. When you're saved by Jesus, you relinquish the right to, quote, steer yourself any direction you choose. When Jesus calls his disciples to him, he says, he who seeks to gain his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will gain it. Pick up your cross and follow me. When we become Christians, we give up the right to live for our own desires, because we realize how futile they are. We realize that they can't satisfy us, and they don't really serve the world well. We're actually called to something greater in Jesus Christ. And secondly, gospel readiness also assumes that sometimes you'll be carried to the not-so-good streets. Paul says in his own poetic way, these shoes, they may march you into the enemy's teeth, but look on your feet. It's the gospel of peace. What a weird word to use in the context of only war. During times of war, when your feet are moving to either kill or be killed, Paul wants to remind you of peace. Even when we run into war itself, Paul wants you to know that the gospel has solved your greatest problem that you have been reconciled to God, and therefore in all circumstances, you can know true peace. John Piper has this wonderful quote that I heard once, and it's stuck in my mind in this tension between the battle and the peace. He says this, he says, 
Let the lions roar and let the swords swing, for we will have resurrection bodies. The two things that have killed more Christians during the time of Rome are swords and lions. And Paul says, let them roar, let them swing. Jesus has solved our greatest need. If Jesus has won us to God through his blood, then we don't have to fear anything in this world. We may walk as Christians through the valley of the shadow of death, but our feet will be ready. We may move forward in risky cross-cultural evangelism for the sake of the lost and the love of Christ, but we are ready and willing to face those challenges because we know Jesus has given us something that this world cannot take away. You see, a Christian so preoccupied with God's truth and God's work is willing to lose ground in our world in order to gain ground in the kingdom of heaven. So are you ready to be carried like this? Because the truth is this gospel has already brought you somewhere. And in those places where this gospel has carried you, in this wonderful hope is the readiness of God rearing to go. What does it look like for you in the places that the gospel has carried you and where the gospel will carry you to have a life shaped by the readiness of the gospel? Consider what the, apostle, or what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 52, verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Man, if we want to be a Missoula church, if we want to be a sending church, we need to be a church that realizes in the mouth of the lions that the gospel has shod our feet with peace. And we must be ready to go. I pray that God makes us a church ready to go wherever the gospel calls us to go. When Paul calls us, we see this now, his command in Ephesians is to stand firm. But everything Paul has talked about is the opposite of standing, which means the call to stand firm as a Christian is not static, it's dynamic. It demands something from you. It demands that you take into account these things that Paul is saying, which means for you in here, when you hear Paul's call to stand firm, it might very well mean that you need to get moving. Paul says it's time to go. It's time to get dressed. It's time to realize that this life of faith is going to demand things from you. And you will be met by wonder anew each and every day. Because it's only when Paul has dressed the soldier like this that he now turns and he calls you to take up something. And this is where we turn to the second point today, the armaments of a Christian soldier. This is where Paul no longer is pointing to what you've done to put on, and now he's saying, pick it up. Put this in your hand and let's go. What does Paul want you to be armed with? Look at Ephesians 6 verse 16. Firstly, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. So here we see Paul's first armament given. He says, take up faith. Take up the shield of faith. Now, oftentimes when we think of shields, we think of smaller shields that like Vikings use or medieval knights. But in Rome, the shield covered your entire person. 
And so Paul is like, this is a fitting analogy for a faith that covers all of your life. Not one portion of your body is safe apart from this. And in the Roman phalanx, there was nothing more practical to the soldier than his shield. And here Paul wants you to understand that the most practical piece of weaponry you have against sin and the attacks of Satan is your faith in Jesus Christ. Faith can so often, I know in my life, become an afterthought, right? Faith is almost this object that we take and at one point we put it in Christ Jesus and it stays there. We have done something with our faith What Paul is saying is it's not something you set somewhere and walk away. It is something that you carry with you every moment of every day. It is to be daily relied upon. And I think there's something staggering in this part of the text that I think that we in America specifically are so apt to miss. Dear Christian, your faith will be tested. Out of all of the analogies that Paul uses in this text, this is the one designed and expected to take the worst beating. We sometimes think that in coming to faith in Jesus Christ, that it is a life of only victory. And as soon as the devil swings against our shield, we say there's something drastically wrong. And instead of clinging to it, we lay it down. But Paul says, do not be caught off guard when the battle bludgeons your faith. Eve was caught off guard. When Satan came to Eve, she wasn't expecting it. And Satan took the smallest lapses of understanding in Eve's faith and twisted it to full-on rebellion. So where are you making steps to become more and more certain and useful of this faith? You see, the smallest amount of faith in Jesus Christ is faith well prescribed. It is wonderfully able to save you. The smallest faith in Jesus Christ is your Lord who takes away sin and bears the punishment of death for your sake saves you. But as a growing Christian, as a moving soldier, we should always want to say, where is this growing? Where is it becoming stronger? Look at what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11 verses 1 through 3. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their, their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. You see, what Paul describes here is faith in things unseen. But it's not blind faith, is it? He's calling us to know To look, to understand. This is where he's going back to our belt of truth. Look at this truth that shapes all of it. This faith which upholds your entire worldview, even in times of suffering. 
You see, coming to church and reading your Bible are great and essential steps in firming up this faith. But I want to give you one additional way you can do that if you haven't already, and that's to join a community group. It's in those groups where one of our primary purposes is just to encourage one another because we know that this world wages war against our faith. And we know there are times where we become panicked and all we want to do is cast it aside. But together we remind each other that this shield which God has given us is sufficient for what this world will throw at it. We cannot think too much of Jesus and we cannot help others think too much about him either. Look at kind of this corporate aspect of faith that Paul talks about as he concludes this portion of faith in Hebrews 12. Therefore, or not Paul, the writer of Hebrews, excuse me. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and every sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Corporately, together with all these witnesses, the witnesses of church history, the witnesses that are here today, let us fix our eyes on Jesus and become more convinced that we have a faith which endures. Next, Paul gives one command, and with that command actually come two pieces of armor that he sees being tied together. This is Ephesians 6, verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. Not only does Paul want us to take up and to be occupied with our faith, but here he calls us to take up salvation in God's word. Now again, Paul can't possibly be telling somebody to take up salvation for the first time for two reasons. One, because he's already writing to those who are in the church. He's assuming, that doesn't mean that there's non, there, there are people, that everybody in the church is Christian, But as a whole, he's assuming that those who are in church have put their faith in Jesus. And secondly, you can't take up salvation. That's why we needed Jesus. If we could take up salvation on our own, there'd be no need for Jesus. Salvation is a free gift given by God. But just as a helmet protects the most exposed part of you, so too is salvation a hope in the exposure we have in this world. And it's here that you begin to see how these armaments, this entire armor, is meant to be a unit. It's meant to work together. To go out with only parts of it won't be sufficient. When our faith is challenged, we remember the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. And when we remember the salvation we have in Jesus Christ, when it's on the top of our mind, then we are strengthened in our faith. You see, how many times when you face trials do you actually consider your salvation? This is something I get really caught up in. When I'm faced with trials, when I'm faced with sin, it's easy for me to make this weird compartmentalization in my faith where I just think about the things of God. I think about what Jesus did. I think about who God is. I reflect on the things of faith. But when Paul here is talking about taking on salvation, he is calling you to reflect on your faith, but specifically to reflect on the effect of your faith that you have been delivered that you have salvation 
It reminds us of this wonderful truth that despite what we know about God, what we know about ourselves, and what we know about our world, that there really is hope at the end. That God really is able to save you. Look at how Paul says this again in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Paul defines this hope that you have right now and whatever it is you're going through. Paul wants you to know this hope. So certainly, look at what he says in Romans 8, verses 37 through 39. Know in all these things. You want to know what those things are? Christians being martyred by the hundreds. That's the context right before it. We are like sheep led to the slaughter. He says, in all these things. When the lions roar and the swords swing and the devil laughs, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Salvation belongs to God's people. If you believe in Jesus, I love Paul's word, you're more than a conqueror. What's higher than a conqueror? I don't know, but we are, if we're in Christ. It's a good thing to be put on. It's a good thing to remind ourselves of. You have been delivered from your sin through Jesus, which means everything else you face in this world is nothing compared to what Jesus has already faced for you and conquered triumphantly in his death and resurrection. When the devil wages war and when sin lurks in your heart, remind yourselves practically I've been saved. One of the things that the helmets had during this time is they had that plume. You've seen it in all the movies, the decorative plume that stood on top. And the color signified the army you fought for and your rank in that army. And as Christians, there is nothing we need to be reminded of more and symbolized to our world of the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. That is the banner under which we fight and we do not lose heart. And I pray that it is the framing point of our minds and thoughts as well. But how do we know this? When someone smacks you on a head in battle with a sword, the last thing you're thinking of is your helmet. You're thinking of the pain you feel. You're being disoriented. How do we know this when the world wages against us, that this salvation is for us? Because God's Spirit is reminding us continually through His Word. God's Word is what proclaims to us most clearly this salvation. It is the only offensive weapon given in this list to us as believers. And it's not just God's Word. It is the sword of the Spirit, which is God's Word, which means this. This isn't a dead book. This isn't a theology book that you would read as you would read one on Mormonism or Islam. This is alive, a living and active, the, the author of Hebrews says, with God's spirit. Which means when you read the Bible, you could be in the most distant part of this world and you can never read it alone. For God is here. 
When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the desert, it wasn't his miracles that he relied on. It wasn't his ready and willing followers. It was God's word and God's spirit. And at it, he was able to endure trials which you could not. How much more will we be able to endure trials at our level with God's help and God's word? So I encourage you to read this. It's difficult. If you're a new Christian, there's something intimidating about this. Maybe it's just the small font. I don't know. But we get intimidated by it. And so I don't know if you know whoever's sitting next to you at church, but ask them to read the Bible with you. Go out to coffee. Read it. Ask for help. Grab a good study Bible. The ESV study Bible is great. There's another study Bible called the Gospel Transformation Study Bible, and they have notes in it that help you understand what's going on. But this is life to us. The theologian John Frame says that uh, says a gun will subdue a man, but only the word of God will subdue Satan. We wouldn't take a knife to a gunfight, and we'd be foolish to think that we could fight against Satan and sin without the sword of the Spirit. Cling to it. There's one final thing which Paul wants to call us to in our effort to stand firm, and that is that he calls us to prayer. He wants you, lastly, to take up prayer. Read with me verses 18 through 20. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. J.C. Ryle was a 19th century pastor, and I love this little illustration he gives. He says, I heard it, I've heard it said that some people who grind metal sometimes wear a magnetic mouthpiece at their work, which catches all the fine metal dust that flies around them and prevents it from entering into their lungs and so saves their life. Prayer is the mouthpiece that you must wear continually or else you will never work uninjured by the unhealthy atmosphere of this sinful world. You must pray. What a great illustration that fits so perfectly with the dangers of the world that Paul here is describing. Do you see prayer as essential as Paul does? And I love how he makes this point. Because the metaphor completely falls away, doesn't it? Everything else has cool things that we want to go make at VBS. And then he gets to prayer, and there's nothing. And we look at that, and we're like, can I get the sword instead? Can I have the helmet? This doesn't have anything. And I think Paul is doing it intentionally to actually show that all of this is nothing without the power of God. It's stressing the importance of it. You won't make it if you are not prayerful. And not just you personally, but Paul's talking about this church corporately. The hope of the church and its proclamation of the gospel beyond the borders is tied up in prayer. You see, one might be able to read through this list of armor and we might get puffed up with the sense of individuality. I can do it. I'm Rambo got the armor, we're good to go. But here Paul is saying, you can't do it on your own. In talking about prayer, he reminds us of two things. The first is that prayer shows that you need God. And second, it shows that you need God's people. 
We need God himself and we need the prayers of God's church if we are going to endure. And being prayerful helps us in both those areas. Paul is writing this. He knows that he wears this exact same armor. He's the one thinking it up. He's the one telling you to put it on. And yet Paul at the end is asking for prayer. He knows that we need the help of God. God works through prayer. God wants you to pray for your fellow believers in Missoula and across the globe. He says to remember all of the saints, keep vigilant in this. And what a great opportunity we have this week to practice this, to come on Tuesday and hear about what the gospel is doing in Uganda. And while it's in Uganda, there are pastors that come from all around Africa here, including pastors from nations like Sudan, which is one of the most persecuted places in the world. Oh, that we would be a church praying boldly evangelistic prayers like this for us in this city and for those who are in oppressed countries across the globe. Are you prayerful? Because the armor rusts and the sword grows tired if you're in a prayer list. And I want you to look, just in closing, at one point at the end, in verses 16 through 18, again, or 18 through 20, excuse me. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me. Now notice why. That words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador... In chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. In all the language of boldness and fighting and standing firm and suiting up, we need to understand, we need to be fitted as the church what gospel success looks like. What does it look like to be so preoccupied with Jesus that we can say we have victorious living? Because be careful. There are people who will say victorious living in Christ is something far from what Paul is saying here. The author of Hebrews, we looked at chapter 11. He goes on to give this amazing tribute to the men and women who live by faith. And you know what it ends with? These all died. In Acts 7, Stephen puts on prayer like you've never seen it. And he's stoned and killed. William Tyndale treasured God's word so much so that his passion in life was to get God's word to as many people as they could. And he was martyred by the Catholic Church for translating the scripture into language that people could understand. What good is this armor? What is our expectation in the struggles of this world? And this is where I call you to consider the uniqueness of Paul in this text. Here Paul is in prison for preaching the gospel. And he is chained to a Roman guard. And here Paul is, sitting, writing this letter, and he's like, what is something I could convince this church that they aren't defeated, that the gospel's going to go forward, that they're going to be okay? And he looks up at the guy who's holding him captive, and he says, that's a good idea. (laughs) 
That's it. That's, that's the sign of Christian victory. Now let me move my chain. You see, the beauty of the gospel is that prisoners can claim armor. You see, when we submit our lives to the plan of Jesus Christ, to unite all things in Ephesians 1 verse 10, to unite all things in Jesus Christ, we realize that we will look like failures in every category by our world. But we are not judged by the world's standards of success. We do not labor for worldly treasures. We work for heavenly ones. And as Paul said in Ephesians 6.13 that we looked at last week, the goal of all of life is that when all is said and done, having done everything, that we might be those who stand firm. There is a beautiful picture of God's church which is presented to us in the book of Ephesians. But we will only be that church if we are captivated by the call to endure in this armor, even when the chains of this world cling to our flesh. And in those moments, Paul is calling you to remember that you have a church mightily praying for you, and you have a Jesus who has promised to endure you. And in closing, Paul says this to you, peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. May you be a believer whose love for Jesus does not corrode or fade but endures to receive the crown of life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you. You have loved us so mightily that not only have you saved us, but you have equipped us. It is here for us to have, to hold, to cherish, and to make much of. And so I pray that you put aside the fiery darts of the devil which distract us with immediacy and comfort, and you instead fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross so that we might endure as we carry our own. I can't help but think of the line the martyr Jim Elliot wrote in his journal in 1950, that he is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. We must have that if we are to endure. Grant it to us here in this city for your glory. Amen.